From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, floppy eyelid syndrome, the problem. We hypothesize that perhaps patients who have lid aversion at night with this condition are less likely to alter their sleeping position or wake as a person with normal arousability might do. First this. Following our podcast today, we'll have a message about the upcoming ASCRS Glaucoma Day 2011 at the ASCRS ASOA Symposium in Congress in San Diego. Pressure is important, but don't lose sight of the vision. Glaucoma Day features critical updates, robust debates, and interactive case studies on what comprehensive ophthalmologists and anterior segment surgeons need to know about glaucoma management. Daniel Ezra has been a popular guest on A Scene From Here. Today, he tackles the difficult topic of floppy eyelid syndrome. In this week's podcast, we'll hear about the pathology and clinical features that can aid in diagnosis. In the next podcast, we'll hear about how to fix floppy eyelid syndrome. Daniel, welcome back to A Scene From Here. I've had a bunch of floppy eyelid syndrome patients in my own practice, But for residents listening to this podcast who may not have encountered this pathology yet, can I get you to describe a typical presentation? Yeah. uh, These are patients who very typically present with nonspecific symptoms of ocular irritation very often for many years. And uh, these patients also very typically will have been misdiagnosed previously. Uh, When you examine them, um, they will have uh, discharge, uh, inflammation of the conjunctiva, and very often, uh, they'll also have corneal punctate keratopathy. Uh, they also have a very typical clinical phenotype um, of uh, high BMI, often with obstructive sleep apnea. Um, and again, these patients are often mis- misdiagnosed. And the key to identification of this condition really lies in the upper lid examination. Uh, these patients will have ready aversion of the upper lid with very, very minimal lateral traction. They'll have a papillary conjunctivitis on the uh, upper lid, tarsal conjunctiva, and a very characteristic loss of tarsal rigidity, allowing the tarsal plate to be folded over itself with ease, and the tarsal plate becomes very hyperelastic when manipulated. So really, it's about looking at the uh, patient overall, uh, trying to spot uh, their typical clinical phenotype, and also examining the upper lid very carefully. What is going on histopathologically in floppy eyelid syndrome? Well, perhaps the most well-recognized feature has been a decrease in mature elastic fibers, and there have been several studies which have shown this with uh, fairly good reproducibility. Uh, A smaller number of studies have also looked at uh, the collagen uh, makeup of the tarsal plate and have found this to be normal. Now, it's important to remember that elastic fibers impart the property of resilience and elastic recoil to tissues, whereas collagen imparts the the property of tensile strength. So they are very different in terms of their mechanical properties. Um, but with floppy eyelid syndrome, one would expect the hyperelasticity of the tarsal plate to cause an, to be associated with an increase in elastic fibers and perhaps a decrease in collagen fibers. And this represents a central paradox between the clinical features and the known histopathological features of the condition. 
Now, our group has unpublished data um, which um, constitute the largest histopathology series of this condition, which has actually shown an increase in collagen in the tarsal plate, and also um, a change in elastic fiber phenotype to a stiffer variant, um, which is very consistent with an adaptive change uh, commonly seen in many other tissues which are subjected to recurrent mechanical trauma and repeated cyclical stress. So we do see a decrease in mature elastic fibers, but this is only part of the picture. We're probably seeing a change in elastic fiber makeup from the mature fiber variant to a stiffer variant, which we call oxytalin fibers. There's clearly much more work needs to be done on this to better define uh, the histopathological mechanisms underlying the condition. Prior to your study, what non-ophthalmological associations had been established with floppy eyelid syndrome? Well, uh, several, have, several have been proposed, but these have mostly taken the form of sporadic case reports. Uh, conditions like hyperglycinemia, schizophrenia, Down syndrome. But perhaps the most consistently reported have been obstructive sleep apnea, hypertension, and diabetes. However, the associations between these conditions and floppy eyelid syndrome must be questioned because obesity itself is independently associated with them and therefore may well be a confounding factor because, of course, it's independently associated with floppy eyelid syndrome as well. Right, that it could be a common cause of the two, not to imply uh, causation from the correlation. Exactly, exactly right. And that's because, take sleep apnea, for example, and floppy eyelid syndrome, they're both, both independently associated with obesity. So making an association between sleep apnea and floppy eyelid is very questionable unless we control for obesity. On the same theme, you report that the association with obstructive sleep apnea hypopnea syndrome may be more than just an association, but may in fact be causative that obstructive sleep apnea hypopnea syndrome may cause floppy eyelid syndrome. Can you elaborate on that? Certainly. I mean, we, we can't say for sure because all of the patients that we tend to see are really end stage where much of the pathological process has already occurred. But based um, on the clinical data that we have and a very strong association with um, sleep side and obstructive sleep apnea, it is likely that mechanical factors will play an important role. Now, several other studies uh, have closely examined sleep behavior and they've shown that patients with floppy eyelid syndrome and sleep apnea typically sleep face down on the side affected, uh, with the lid becoming grossly distorted while they sleep. Um, this causes recurrent cyclic mechanical trauma to the lid, and it is very likely that obstructive sleep apnea may be responsible for the pathological sleep position and configuration of the upper eyelid during sleep, causing recurrent trauma and subsequent um, upper lid hyperelasticity. Daniel, what was the objective of this study? Well, the primary objectives were firstly to describe the demographic characteristics of a large group of uh, floppy eyelid syndrome patients. That's important because several other studies have proposed a distinct condition called lax eyelid syndrome, which consists of all of the typical ophthalmic features of floppy eyelid syndrome, but is a label used for patients with a normal body mass index, suggesting that there may be a subgroup of patients with a normal BMI and perhaps who are of a younger age that would be considered to have a different um, condition called lax eyelid syndrome. Now, this nosology has not been particularly popular, um, but we wanted to see, um, using our large series, whether there was indeed a subgroup like this. 
Um, our, other sec- our, our primary objectives were to determine the relationships between floppy eyelid syndrome and both sleep apnea and keratoconus. And our secondary objectives were to look at a variety of upper and lower lid factors and determine their association with the condition. What were your findings? What were your results? Well, with regard to the demographics, we found that the mean age on presentation was uh, about 50 years old with a real predilection for the male gender. Uh, But we found no distinct subgroup on the basis of weight or age. And very significantly, there was a real spread in these variables with the ages varying between 25 and 85 and BMIs varying between 19 and about 65. This indicates that there's a wide spectrum of patients who will present with this condition and that we need to be aware of this. So it's not just going to be patients who are male or obese um, or in their 50s. It can be uh, female patients. It can also be patients with a normal BMI and, and with a much wider range of age groups than we might expect. When we looked at the association with sleep apnea, we found that despite correcting for body mass index, there was a very strong association with an odds ratio of about 12.5 between the test and control groups. We also found that uh, floppy eyelid syndrome uh, laterality and sleep laterality were very closely associated. Just to reiterate what you just said, you found that the association with sleep apnea syndrome persisted even when you controlled for body mass index, implying that this is a real correlation and not merely a manifestation of an association between floppy eyelid syndrome and obesity. Now, you found an interesting association with keratoconus regarding laterality. Can I get you to describe that? We we found uh, an even stronger association between uh, floppy eyelid syndrome and keratoconus uh, than there was with sleep apnea. Um, There was an odds ratio of about 20 between the two groups. We did not, however, find uh, a significant association with laterality. And we have to bear in mind, of course, that this study was not power to detect uh, that particular um, issue. So we have to take findings of non-significance with caution. But keratoconus, uh, again, is strongly associated with, with a very high uh, odds ratio. And we all, of course, are aware that keratoconus is known to be related to uh, eye rubbing and mechanical trauma to the cornea. Um, this further strengthens uh, the suggested mechanism that recurrent mechanical stress may be important in the etiology of floppy eyelid syndrome. Now, Daniel, the assumption that I would have made, and is obviously not correct, is that if my eyelid flipped over while I were sleeping, uh, that I would wake up and change position. Uh, clearly, that's not going on here. Why is it that the patient doesn't change position when the lid flips over? Central to the uh, etiology of obstructive sleep apnea is depression of um, important central nervous system reflexes to noxious stimuli and particularly hypoxia. Obstructive sleep apnea patients become apneic or hypopneic for quite considerable periods of time while they're sleeping. And their CNS reflexes and responses to hypoxia are dramatically depressed. And these patients are able to tolerate this for prolonged periods of time. Now, it's widely thought and demonstrated um, that the, this depression in, in CNS arousability and response to noxious stimuli also occurs for other uh, uncomfortable, painful uh, stimuli. Um, and we hypothesize that perhaps patients who have lid aversion at night with this condition are less likely to alter their sleeping position or wake 
uh, as, a, as a person with normal arousability uh, might do. We also looked at upper and lower limb abnormalities of the condition to look for significant associations. We didn't find any uh, lower limb abnormalities, which have been described in the past as um, lower limb ectropian, lower limb lateral cancer laxity. But with regard to the upper lid, um, we did find that lashtosis was a very significant association. Now, this has been described widely before, but it's just something that I wanted to emphasize because it can quite often give the physician a clue when looking at a patient. When you see significant lashtosis, um, it's always worth looking and examining the upper lid for features of floppy eyelid syndrome. And there was a very strong association between lashtosis and the condition. It's a very uh, characteristic appearance where the, lid, where the lid lashes, instead of being directed upwards, will be uh, directed downwards, almost completely vertically, um, forming a, a sort of curtain uh, under the upper eyelid. It's a very typical appearance when, when seen. And uh, I think I, it has been emphasized before, but it's a very important clinical sign which can give us a clue to the presence of underlying floppy eyelid syndrome. Daniel Ezra, thank you so much. Not at all, not at all. It's nice speaking to you again. Daniel Ezra is fellow and lecturer in oculoplastics and orbital surgery at the Moorfields Eye Hospital of University College London and the Biomedical Research Center for Ophthalmology in London, England, United Kingdom. His paper, The Associations of Floppy Eyelid Syndrome, a Case Control Study, appears in the April 2010 issue of Ophthalmology. I had the opportunity to talk to Gary Condon about the upcoming ASCRS Glaucoma Day 2011 at the ASCRS ASOA Symposium in Congress in San Diego. Gary, what's your role in Glaucoma Day? The ASCRS has a glaucoma clinical committee, so I help in planning the program as well as being on the committee. And in planning the program, I'm often involved in it as well. Gary, what are you trying to accomplish in this all-day meeting? Our objectives are really to uh, create a program that's aimed for the more comprehensive ophthalmologist. The program content is geared more toward someone who's not involved in subspecialty tertiary glaucoma care, but in day-to-day taking care of patients, many of whom in a general ophthalmic practice have glaucoma, and um, give them a sense, a hands-on sense of how they can go back and feel that they have a better handle on taking care of patients with the latest information, more practical hands-on take-home information that they can use day in and day out and and not something that is sort of being debated in in the halls of the glaucoma subspecialty arena. Gary, you mentioned that Glaucoma Day is really focused on having participants bring something home, get something very concrete out of it that they can add to their practice. Can you give me an example, you've been both a speaker and an audience member, of something practical that you've taken back? Well, I'll tell you, Josh, the thing that I, the thing that I take home from it, the thing that I take home from it the most is a sense of security. I can, I can get a good feel for where I am in the spectrum in terms of the, of the decision-making processes that we consider when we take care of a patient who, for instance, is a good old garden variety, day-in, day-out glaucoma patient who has cataract. Yes, I'm going to do the patient's cataract. Is it okay to do it without doing anything more right now for the glaucoma? And the best part of the glaucoma day is that we get down to nitty-gritty, nuts and bolts, and present case histories to the audience with panel discussion and get uh, a consensus of how various panel members or audience folks 
would handle that particular case. You go home thinking, feeling like you, you've got a, a handle on the current consensus. Gary Condon, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Anytime. Ask questions of Dr. Ezra or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.